Are you sure you want to go there, Chris? Yeah, I don't uh, Anyway, so Don, what did you what did you think of the uh Well Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is confused by the latest health study as I am by airplane filtration systems. Have you guys flown anytime recently? Yeah. No. Do you really believe that the air in the plane is being completely renewed every two to three seconds or whatever they claim is happening. You know, I tested that theory by lighting up a cigar on my last uh-huh, flight uh-huh. and they yelled go? at me. They did? No, no, I didn't do that. Oh. But I bet it would not have worked. I bet it would not have worked. What Do you guys try? I mean, so flying obviously in the era of COVID is very different. Right. And so I, I part of me feels like there's no way the air can be as good as they claim it is. On the other hand, we don't hear about a lot of outbreaks that have been happening on planes, which suggests they probably are pretty decent, right? Well, hard to measure an effect given all the other things. Yeah. But there, there, are, there are some classic ones. There, I mean, there's there's a very famous TB outbreak where they, they identified it within various rows of the index case. So it happens. And there, just, have been, there have been COVID ones as well. I right. just feel like we, because people are so paranoid about flying, that if they get sick after flying, they're going to assume it came from the plane and they're going to report it. And so we would hear about it if it was a common thing. I don't know. Hmm. That's just my theory. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. I am joined, as always, with Dr. Christopher Gill. From the Departments of Global Health and Global Health. Both of them. Mm-hmm. You got a second appointment well, in Global pl- Health? Plural. I'm I know. For plural. But you have two appointments in the same department. That's right. Welcome, Chris. And Dr. Don Thea, also from the Department of Global Health and the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Don. Matt, Chris. Hello. Hey. Hello, Nick. Nick. (laughs) Gentlemen. As a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. Use Hub for Lifelong Learning. Nick, do we get any feedback on how many people go to the website specifically because I say it every two weeks? Is there a spike on the day after? Nick is saying that the day after we record... Apparently, it goes up a thousand fold. Apparently, so it's, it's it really drops significantly every time we recommend it. <laughs> anyway, you can head there. You can also uh, give us a rating on your favorite podcast app if you are so inclined. So let's move on to the show. So today, in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to talk about a study that looked at the impact of daily COVID testing in schools to try and keep kids from having to isolate when they are exposed. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about COVID-19, health equity, and wicked problems. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> wicked problems. I was thinking, is that the musical or are we talking Boston? We're talking Boston, I think. Okay. And big bad problems. It big, wicked big problems. And in our final segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Don will just butcher the name of amazing and amusing. <laughs> All right, so segment one. So we're going to talk about an article which looked at the impact of in the in the UK of daily COVID testing for kids in school who were exposed to someone who was COVID positive. It was published in the Lancet, and it was entitled "Daily Testing for Contacts of Individuals with SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Attendance and SARS-CoV-2 Transmission in English Secondary Schools and Colleges: colon, An Open Label Cluster Randomized Trial." I believe, therefore, taking the prize for longest title that we have read so far. It was by first author Dr. Bernadette Young of the Nuffield Department of Medicine. Some headlines on this one because it did get a bunch. So. 
New York Times says a new COVID testing model aims to spare students from quarantine. Forbes says new testing protocols in schools may minimize student quarantines. Axios says more schools using test-to-stay strategy to minimize quarantines. That one was based on the article, but it was a larger article. And then Vox says a simple solution to the endless school quarantines, which I thought, by the way, I, I have to say I'm impressed that we have now reached peak COVID where people now actually know the difference between isolation and quarantine, which is pretty awesome. Oh, those armchair epidemiologists yeah. out there. Yeah. All right. So, Don, you're going to talk us through this one. What are no, they? Oh, is that Don? Is this Don? Yes, yeah, me. Okay, you're right. I'm doing the other one. Okay. <laughs> Next week, in two weeks. In two weeks when you come back. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, the first thing I had to do in going through this paper was go right to Wikipedia to find out what is a form a sixth form and his seventh right? form. Yeah. Right. I had I had no idea what they were talking about because they're talking about grade schools, they're talking <laughs> about secondary schools, they're talking about colleges, they're talking about public schools, which are fee schools. Mm-hmm. It's like a completely different it, system over there. It is weird to me. I knew about the forms, but the thing that is weird to me is that public and private seem to have the opposite <laughs> meanings. <laughs> exactly. right. opposite. What yeah. we think of as a public school, is there a private school? Right. That's right. It's weird. The other thing that's a little funky is that when they talk about colleges in this state, these are like usually one-year transition to university yeah. programs. They're like an extension of high school mm-hmm. for people who it's are heading like to university. one-year junior college. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of. It's yeah, not yeah. like what we think about like going right. to Tufts or going to Bates, right. you know, or yeah. going to Antioch. So what they're, what, what they're trying to do in this study, I think, is trying to find a way to minimize the amount of time that kids are put into quarantine because they have had a contact with a known case of COVID, either amongst a schoolmate or staff member at the school or somebody at home, or it doesn't really matter where. But the, the, the convention had been that these kids have to be removed from school and quarantined for 10 days or so and tested multiple times. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to minimize that because of the obvious impacts socially, educationally, and on mental health for kids being taken out of school. So with the advent of rapid diagnostic tests, which they have available in England to a much greater extent than they have here, unfortunately. We can go down that rabbit hole Mm -hmm. for a long time. But Mm -hmm. um, they took advantage of the availability of these rapid tests to set up an experiment, a cluster-randomized, open-label study, where they took a bunch of schools and they randomized them to different groups. One group where there was a known contact with a, a proven COVID case the child would be enrolled in, the, if they were in the intervention arm, they would do daily testings with these rapid diagnostic tests with the idea that as soon as that test becomes positive, then that child is a known transmission case and would be therefore isolated versus having those children not be tested on a regular basis, but being removed for the usual 10 days. Into quarantine. Into quarantine as opposed to isolation. So it was a cluster randomized, open label, one-to-one allocation study. There were 201 schools are randomly assigned, 99 in the intervention and 102 in the control arms. They randomized by school type and size, presence of sixth form. I guess that is the higher grades. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to make sure that the the population of the students in the two arms were were well-balanced. Presence of residential students, because some of these schools are sleepaway schools. And the proportion of eligible for free school meals, which is a proxy, I think, for socioeconomic status. 
And so all schools were offered two times per week rapid diagnostic tests for children who had new onset symptoms. And if they were rapid diagnostic test positive, they would get a follow-up confirmatory PCR for confirmation. The study ran 10 weeks from April 10th to the end of June 2021. So it was during a period of time in England when there was a low to moderate community transmission of COVID. So it wasn't, it wasn't really hot in the communities. There wasn't a lot of transmission going on. Their outcomes were COVID-19-related school absence, so a kid who actually got infected and then had to be isolated, and then symptomatic confirmed COVID-19 cases. They adjusted for community case rates because there's 109 different schools and there were, you know, there's local differences in um, community-based transmission. And they set it up as a non-inferiority test with a, a margin defined as less than 50% relative increase. Which seems Which pretty huge wide. to me. Yeah, it is pretty wide. It is pretty wide. And it was an intention to treat analysis. And they did something called a compiler average causal effects, which Matt is going to explain in Compire. excruciating... <laughs> Compile? Complier. Complier average causal effects. Matt's going to uh, describe that to the us. case whatever. model. Whatever that means. Or so tacky, what tacky. were the results? So in the intervention group, they managed to get 2,432 contacts to do the, the daily testing. Not everybody in the intervention group were compliant with it. So it was about 42% of the contacts actually in the intervention group actually complied with the intervention. There were 657 symptomatic cases in the control group. 657 symptomatic confirmed infections during seven and a half million days of observation at risk. So that's about 59 cases per 100,000 per week. In the intervention group, it was 740 versus the 657 in 8.3 million days to result in a a, a rate of about 61 cases per 100,000 per week. So the incidence rate ratio, there were several, but the one that I understood was 0.96 and a confidence interval of 0.75 to 1.22. So in essence, they, no difference. there was no difference. And they were able to show that, in fact, there is an advantage to this kind of an approach, because if you can manage to get kids to agree to and comply with testing on a daily basis, you can keep them in school instead of quarantining them for 10 days. So it's powerful. I think it's I think it was a it was a really interesting study. I think it was I thought it was pretty well done and came up with a very useful outcome, you know? Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. I mean, whenever I see a non-inferiority trial, meaning the study is not designed to assess a, a benefit because we don't expect necessarily for there to be a benefit, although there could be. We just be. want it to be not not cause harm. No, yeah, not worse. Because, because we think there will be a, a benefit in terms of the kids being in school. I always want to see, or it would be nice to see, some kind of a cost-effectiveness study because obviously it is more expensive to do the daily testing. And so you, you do wonder whether it's worth it. On the other hand, you also have to factor in the value of the kids being in school. So it gets hard to do. Yeah. I mean, you could do educational attainment yeah. on a kid by kid basis. Yep. That's mm-hmm. something, you know, Absolutely. How, how much were they penalized for being out of school for those 10 days, maybe even a couple of times in a semester. Absolutely. Plus, Chris, plus one of the, you know, one of the things is that the, the cost of rapid diagnostic tests is a function of the uptake of rapid diagnostic tests. And mm-hmm. so right now they're relatively expensive because nobody's using them. Here, but not in the UK. But like, I was just going to say, if, if you like ramp this up on a massive scale, then, you know, the cost would be, you know, so that like doing a cost effective analysis is, is tricky because you have to assume like, what would be the cost if we actually did this at a, at a you know, all schools in England. Agreed. Agreed. Although, I mean, the cost of, of rapid tests in the UK is, is, is cheap, cheap. very, yeah. Uh, anyway. So Chris, your overall take on this one? Oh, I thought this was so cool. I have a couple comments, some of which are a little bit snarky, but 
the the first one is that this was a a pragmatic trial that God bless their hearts. They didn't mention the word pragmatic once because most of the studies Which we've seen- Which made you happy? Yeah, because a lot of the studies we've seen that brag about being pragmatic are kind of like not really all that pragmatic. I, I want to see, I wanna <laughs> so see, I wanna see you publish a, a non-pragmatic trial. I want right, you to uh, call it, it that. An impractical trial. <laughs> <laughs> so and anyway, my, my second comment is that I was impressed the fact that it, it, it achieved its two primary endpoints of like showing there's, there's really no harm in terms of increased COVID infections. And at the same time, you are- you know, reducing the number of sick days, mm-hmm. and so there was kind of a win-win. The economics we can we can we can debate. Sure. The other thing I, I, I it struck me about this is that this is the Michael Mina trial, right? He yes. he has yeah, been banging absolutely. this drum, and here Bless is him. finally empirical validation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Explain who that is. So Michael Mina is a professor over at uh, the, the, that other school in town. He not, actually, not Tufts, he, the other one. I, I, the Boston name College? escapes me. He actually just left. He did. Yeah. Okay. So that he's not even at that school. No, no. Whatever they're called. He's a scientific director of uh, Haverford um, or something. No, a new company. Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway, diagnostic. Um, Haverford School of Public Health isn't that mm-hmm. nearby? No. Anyway, he's been a strong proponent of. He's been ra- a, pr- a strong proponent of, of the tests. idea of like, why don't we use a daily diagnostic test to rule in the ability to go to work? And his argument has been that the lack of sensitivity of these tests is an asset because all you really care about is whether they're pretty contagious or not. And if they are positive on, on, on a rapid antigen test, they're probably wicked contagious. So we could work in that word there. Wicked good. Wicked good. Whereas if they're negative, they might still be positive on PCR, but who cares? Mm. So this is sort of like, you know, it's a, it's a simple strategy. If you could scale it up, it has all sorts of benefits. And here we see empirical validation of this theory at last. Well I think, done. I think, it's, I think it's important also to note that, that 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 approach works because we know that people who get COVID tend to have very high viral loads. That's and right. It goes up very, very rapidly. So you could be below the level of detection for the rapid test, but be PCR positive in the morning. By the afternoon, you're likely to be positive in both because yeah, it, it, right. it happens so quickly. But what the PCR gives you is that long tail of positivity. When that you're not infectious. is probably not important mm-hmm. in terms of who's going to get infected next. So I, I thought this was this was very clever. I also thought it was interesting that the benefit was was demonstrated despite kind of crummy adherence. 42% so I think So we got to talk about that. Yeah. What well, I mean 42% adherence to It's not great. It's not great. And so this is this gets to Don you brought up the complier average causal effect. Essentially what they are doing with that that analysis is they're doing the you know, what, what you probably think of as like the per protocol effect, like what would happen if everybody complied? And the answer is there would be an even bigger benefit. But I don't know. I don't know that I need to, I don't know. It's not that I don't want to know that. I do want to know that. But they couldn't get more right. than 50% so to comply. This is where it's pragmatic. It is what it is. Yeah. This is what it looks like. But but they don't they don't tell us why. I mean, they, what, 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 I mean maybe they probably don't know. But it, it strikes me as important to recognize that they could only get about half of the, the kids to comply with this policy. And it still didn't matter. Yeah. In fact, it, it might have been a much more useful analysis to imagine, like, if this was done outside of a trial, you would imagine that adherence would not be better. It would be probably worse. Exactly. So wouldn't it be more helpful to model, like, what if it's only 30% compliance? Would you still achieve the benefit you're looking for? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm. So I, to me, that was that was a, a something that really stood out. I mean, as you say, I don't know how much it matters because they did, well, they found 
you know, potentially a, a benefit, mostly no harm. And this keeps kids in school, which is, is ultimately the goal. It does potentially cost more, but I think it's a it's an investment that presumably people would want to put in there. I was a little surprised that the one of the primary outcomes was days missing school. Because I mean, isn't it a given that if your pol- your two policy comparisons are go home and isolate versus stay in school, it's going to be better for until, the you're, kids. until you're infected. It's obvious. Yeah. It, it, you're going to, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it just strikes me as, the deck. Unless, that one, unless compliance was so poor that you couldn't, you couldn't make it happen. But even then it's a non-inferiority trial. So if you couldn't make it happen, you're essentially probably back at the old strategy, in which case it's, you know, it's a wash. It's a wash. Yeah. And, and, and that's fine. I mean, if you're keeping more kids in school and you're not having more, but what matters is the transmissions then. That's right. Um, and, and so that's to me where the, where the important part of this study comes in is, are we reducing transmission? One thing I wanted to ask you about is they, they do make a case in here, but they, they never really follow up on it from what I could tell that part of what this policy might do is would get more people to report symptoms. Because mm-hmm. being or, or exposures, because mm-hmm. you wouldn't essentially be penalized for yeah. it. In fact, you would get access to testing, You're destigmatizing it, destigmatizing it, and allowing kids to stay in school. So mm. you could raise your hand and say, and then potentially you might pick up more transmissions that potentially would have been asymptomatic, but you might have less onward transmission. And and I, I felt like they didn't really follow through on that. I would have I would have loved to have seen more on that just to yeah. to know whether or not it had any of those other benefits. Mm-hmm. There were two interesting points that were buried in the paper that I that I thought warrant sort of underscoring. Mm-hmm. They they as I said, they offered two times per week testing for mm-hmm. anybody that wanted it. So they were able to pick up a bunch of cases and using the RDTs, not, using, not PCR, right? But then if the RDT was positive, it was confirmed by PCR. So they identified a certain number of those sort of organically happening cases in the, in the class. And it turns out that one third of the asymptomatic PCR positive cases became symptomatic, meaning two thirds remained asymptomatic. Well, that kind of blew me away. That really underscores kind of what we knew, but it's of a, a, a mm. greater magnitude than I had thought. Two thirds of the, of, the, of the kids that were PCR positive started at asymptomatic, remained asymptomatic. They yeah. never would have been picked up. Do you think that's because it was kids? I mean, that, that if you looked across the entire age distribution, possibly, it wouldn't look like that? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, they're more resilient, yeah. you know. So that's, what that's, I hear. that's probably part of it. The other but one, I agree with you. I mean, but that has, that has really big implications for, well, maybe not so much now, but, but certainly when back when we were debating whether or not to send kids back to school here in the U.S. With, yeah. without really testing them, yeah. that you could have a lot of transmission that nobody's picking up that then gets taken home. Now, you know, that was pre-vaccine, so I don't know if we think about it in quite the same way. but And certainly it has implications for the staff and mm-hmm. the older teachers, especially if they have comorbidities. The other tidbit that I thought was really interesting was that they stated that contact case transmission occurred only 2% of the time. Really low. 2% of the yeah, time. It's really low. That's just amazing. You know, and, and we're, we're, it's, we're seeing rates that are astronomical in prison. We're seeing rates that are really, really high in other kind of confined spaces like cruise ships. 2% kind of blew me away. I thought that that was extremely low. Hmm. Yeah, again, I do wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that it's kids and whether there's you know anything to that. Plus, you know, if you're having lots of 
asymptomatic kids and you're also having, you know, kids just maybe with lower levels of infection. So they're not spreading as much, you know, virus or shedding as much virus. But if I understand, it's about 15% in household contacts that tend to get infected. You know, so two percent would be substantially lower. I think it depends on a lot of things, mm-hmm. and in, in, in terms of household context, there was a paper that that I just saw this morning. I don't have a reference for it, but it was it was a, an elegant way of looking at in household transmission events, and they looked at households that had one unvaccinated individual versus a number of other household members who were vaccinated, the number of times that there were transmission events. And the more vaccinated people in the household, the fewer transmission events that occurred in the household. So, you know, it, it, it depends, like so many things. It depends. Yeah, in terms I, of I, household think I, I think I know the data that you're referring to. And it, it does, it definitely lends some credence to the theory that vaccinated folks are less likely to become infected. It, it's obviously, it's not a it's not a, a sterilizing vaccination, but it, it clearly there is benefit. The other thing I want to ask you all about is how generalizable do you think this finding is in the sense of it, it strikes me that there is a fair bit of context here. One is, as you say, they were doing twice, twice a week testing. So that was sort of part of the standard of care across both arms. It was done, as you said, during a period of relatively low transmission in the UK. And, you know, everything is just context specific. I mean, you know, depending on the schools you pick, the ability to enforce these policies might be very different depending on where you are and and how much resources you have access to. So I, I just wonder, you know, whether you think this is something that says it can work. Or does this mean it's going to work in almost all cases? I, I think it's going to be very context specific. I, th- I and I think it's going to be very dependent upon the amount of community transmission that's going on. If you know, it it looks like it probably works for low and moderate transmission, but I think if it gets much more intense than moderate, it's it's I can't imagine it's going to work. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I didn't see in the paper, maybe I just missed it, was w- some description of the mask compliance rate mm. in these schools or whether they were even using masks in these schools. I, I didn't see that anywhere. Mm. Did you guys spot that? Because I it, did not. it might speak, for example, to the, the very low case contact transmission rate of 2% if they're all wearing masks all the time. But, but I actually don't know what England was doing then because there was some relaxation of the mask mandates in the spring. So I, I know that that felt like there was a curious admission because otherwise you're right. Like the, the transmission rate seems remarkably low. But of course, if they were all wearing masks, then maybe that's not as surprising. Yeah. I, I don't know that we, we got any information on that to be able to, to judge. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I, I want to go back to is the thing you, you, we raised while you were introducing the study, which is the non-inferiority margin. 50%. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't want to make a big thing out of it because I actually think it's – it turns out with the data they had, I, I'm convinced. But it is interesting to me that they set a non-inferiority margin of 50%. Which you so, can drive a truck through. Meaning, meaning in order to say that this is no worse than the policy that was in place – it could be up to 50% increase in whatever the outcome is. Yeah, is that, twofold, do I twofold increase, 50% reduction, right? Oh, no, I thought it was 1.5 for like 50% increase. But either way, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big margin. And they, they go on to state why they did this. So they said the challenge with setting a non-inferiority margin for transmission events is that the margin's meaning is highly dependent on the control group event rate. And I thought true. that is true only if you define it in relative terms. But if they had defined it in absolute terms, 
you could define a, a transmission difference. Now that's hard, of course, because transmissions are a rare event, but it still seems to me like you could do it. But anyway, I, I you know, I think you you could define probably the same thing in a way that was a relative difference that would appear much more believable, even if it was based on the same 50% number. And you would, you know, we would probably not blink to uh, not, not look at it twice, but it, it just 50% felt large. Mm. Yeah, they must have been very, very ambivalent about what they were expecting to see. To, to, to take such a margin of, of equivalence. We're, uh, yeah, I wondered that, or I wonder if they just didn't have the, the sample size, because I, I, I mean, I didn't go into this thinking there's any chance that this is going to decrease attendance. Mm-hmm. I suppose there is the potential that it could increase transmission. Sure. But yeah, so maybe, I, and, and I guess you're probably right. That is probably why. Mm. So, mm. so they were willing to tolerate some increase in transmission to be able to keep more kids in school. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, that, that, that strikes me. A final point that yep. that's t- a total triviality is the introduction of a new verb that I've never seen before. What's that? Trialed. Trialed. That's a verb. Trialed. T R I A L L E D. Trialed. This it's, was trialed. It's a, it's I've a, never heard that before. It's a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> Are we guiling and gimbering in the wabe? <laughs> <laughs> I, think we, I think we may be. I think we may be. So, uh, so I just did a search on mask on the on the paper, and it says that routine mask use was discontinued during the trial on May 17th, 2021, but other precautions were maintained. So during the initial one-third of the observation period, routine mask use was in place, and then it was discontinued. But does that mean they didn't wear masks? That's, That's all they question. say. So we don't know what the level of compliance with you that is or non-compliance. Yeah. So that, that, that seems to me like, a, like an interesting part of the story that we would, we'd like to know more about. Yeah. Yep. They do refer to masking, but that had to do with the, uh, the, the, the blinding. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yes, they do. They do refer to that. So they literally blinded them by putting they masks on them. And they, that's right. They so did not put the masks Spin them around eyes. in a circle and say, okay, go that way and... And try not to try not get to infected. get COVID. Yeah, I think that's what they did, Chris. Yep, I do have to. I do have to. There's one thing that that did bug me. So I'm going to read you a sentence. On an intention to treat basis, blah 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 blah. We can be 97.5 percent confident that any increase in the rate of symptomatic infection in the intervention group did not exceed 22 percent more than in the control group. And for anyone who's heard me rail about what the definition of a in this case, 97.5%. Confidence interval means you cannot be 97.5% confident in anything except the method. Drives me nuts. Okay, that was a... I can see why that makes you so cross. That was for a... <laughs> that was for a very select... Calm down, Matt. Calm down. Thank you. Thank you. No frothing. Um, I'm okay. I'm back. All right. So let's move on. Unless anyone wants to give any last snarky comments. No, I've, I've, I'm, I'm fully snarked. All right. So is is snark another Jabberwocky refer- reference? I think it might be. I am going to I'm going to do the introduction to the second segment while you look that up on your phone. Oh, Chris is giving me the thumbs up that it was indeed from the Jabberwocky. Yes, it's Lewis Carroll. The the, the narrative follows a crew of ten in the the story, the hunting of the snark, which is also referenced in Jabberwocky. The 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 the, the, the creature, whatever it is, we don't know what it is, but he says it's it's a creature which may turn out to be a highly dangerous boojum. So now we know. Yeah, no, I feel I feel a lot better now. It's a kind of boojum. All right. So in our second segment, we are going to talk about a perspective piece in PLOS Medicine, which is entitled COVID-19 and Global Health Equity for Health, the Good, the Bad, and the Wicked by Elvin Yang and colleagues. And this introduced an idea that I have never 
come across before. And I know there may be some skepticism in the room, but I, I will leave that for later. Talking about the idea of wicked problems and specifically getting at the idea that COVID-19 and global health equity would be a wicked problem. They talk about this for COVID, but they they make reference to HIV and the way that HIV treatment access was handled. They referred to Riddle and Weber's conceptualization of this thing called a wicked problem, which they define in terms of three criteria. They say wicked problems are problems which have no definitive problem statement because understanding the problem is the crux of the problem itself. Number two- Sounds the, like a tautology to me. Yeah, I, got, I got lost on this one. <laughs> the elusive problem formulation precludes a shared understanding of success or even progress by stakeholders. And number three, the absence of a shared agenda undermines the aligned and effective action. Uh, no, I get I get it. So you you both are, are, are a little skeptical of this idea. But at least for me, what it gets at is the idea that part of the reason why we are struggling mightily with equity in COVID, let's say access to COVID, we'll talk about vaccines, but you could talk about, you know, testing or, or, or any kind of treatment. It's because we don't have any shared sense of, of the problem that, you know, we here in the U.S. are hotly debating, and I guess the debate is now over as to whether or not everybody should be able to get a, a booster when, you know, a large part of the world hasn't even had access to a, a first dose yet. So clearly it's true that we don't actually have a, a, a shared sense of what the problem is because some of us think it's perfectly fine that we should be getting our third dose when others haven't gotten their first dose yet. And they make the argument that with HIV, we we solved a lot of these problems by defining what the problem was, access to HIV care, and then, you know, having a group of, of advocates who were very invested in making the case for global access to it. And then number three, having a a clear set of metrics by which we measure progress towards the goals. And they talk about the HIV care cascade where we- And the 90-90-90. And the 90-90-90 goals, which the idea is that 90% of those who are infected are are identified, 90% of them are are on treatment and 90% of them are virally suppressed. And we don't have anything like that. I mean, you think about like so many- of the big global health initiatives have been catalyzed around some sort of set of targets, the Millennium Development Goals, you know, all of these these targets. And there there is no equivalent for COVID-19 that we're all invested in and working towards. And so it's kind of everyone for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I, I share your your sense for this idea that maybe a wicked problem is a is a, a framing that doesn't add a lot. But I, I do resonate to this idea that we we don't actually have a, a shared set of, of goals and metrics that we're working towards in relation to COVID-19. Now, maybe that's because it's an emergency situation and we are just doing whatever we can, but it does strike me that we need something. Mm-hmm. So reactions, <laughs> thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> It's it's hard not for me not to get away from the idea that it was just hoarding on the part of the mm-hmm. of the developed world. I mean, at one point Canada had four times the number of vaccine doses for the entire population of Canada, and part of it also I think was the fact that India got slammed really really badly, and the Serum Institute of India is the is the is a huge entity that supplies 
all vaccines for a large part of the developing world. And India made the decision, we're not going to, we're, we're in such bad shape that we're, we're going to hoard our vaccines because our, our population is really, really having a hard time. I and mean, they, they get hit harder than any other population in the world. So I think, I think those two factors, one I think is a little bit that more venal than the other. Mm-hmm. And I think, yep. I, I think that that was, that was also true in, in terms of some of the, the vaccines that were manufactured in Northern Europe. The other, the other thought I have is that you're absolutely right, and as are the authors in comparing this to the HIV experience, but the HIV experience happened over 30 years. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely and, true. You know, for the first 20 years, there was no really real equity of distribution, even after the, so right. the antiretrovirals were discovered. I mean, when we first started working in sub-Saharan Africa and we were doing trials with antiretrovirals, it was, it was, it was really a difficult choice because they were not generally available. And there were great debates in terms of, of how can we, how can we, how can anybody be doing research under those circumstances when, you know, the $17,000 a year regimen that's being provided to people in New York City is not being provided to people in Kenya. And, and so very synthetic it's, to the inequity issue. And if things hadn't happened at such lightning speed for this pandemic, it might have been different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The only other thing is that, is that I think that there is an aspect to the HIV experience that is a little bit different than the COVID experience because HIV really affected a pretty discreet, vulnerable population, uh, at least in in the the developed world, much less so in the developing world. And I think that there is a much higher sort of perceived stake with respect to COVID because everybody is vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I was gonna. I was gonna mention two points. One in regard to like the history of HIV. One of the most sort of personally impactful moments of my young career was when I flew down to New York to uh, Washington D.C. to watch the American Academy of Sciences, the, excuse me, the Institute of Medicine, mm. having their debate mm. about you know whether to to basically funds HIV drugs for Africa. And, and it was just such an interesting fly-in-the-wall experience where there's a lot of people in the room, but, you know, the, the IOM is such of this horseshoe mm-hmm. group of people staring at a podium and one after another people are giving presentations and you have these two polar extremes being expressed. The, you know, you've got the sort of the Steve's Deeks camp. He's a virologist who was very concerned about antiretroviral resistance, saying we've got to be really careful, we've got to be really careful here, you know, if we, if we mess this up, we really mess this up bad. And then on the other hand, you've got like the, the, the Jim Kims and the Paul Farmers. I think Jim Kim was there, Paul Farmer was not there, but I, they're expressing the same position where, the, where they're like, you know, this is a life-threatening, you know, this is a cataclysm and we've got to move fast. Mm-hmm. People are dying, there's, there's no time to wait for the perfect solution, we just got to go. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in hindsight, that camp won. You know, the, we have to go fast. Thankfully, thankfully. and they were right mm-hmm. they uh, were. about this. They were absolutely right. And I and I and in and sort of projecting that forwards, I wonder if if you know we need to again like be so careful of not falling into the perfect is the enemy of the good trap that mm-hmm. we so often do in public health. Mm-hmm. That we we were afraid that making a a pretty good decision is not 
you know, instead of the best decision is going to be more harmful than, in fact, what we end up doing is making no decision. So that was my first point. And the second one is that I was really struck by this statement in the, in the paper. And I'll just quote it. He says, at present, this is, he's referring to the COVAX initiative. And the COVAX is this group that's trying to, you know, cre- create vaccine access in poor countries. And it's, they say, at present, the working global targets for distribution of vaccine have been put forth by COVAX, an alliance between Gavi, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, and WHO. COVAX ceased to allocate vaccine to cover 20% of the population in all countries. Yet is a 20% floor targeting success or is that capitulation to failure? I actually thought that was a pretty good good statement. Totally agree. Because 20% is pathetic. It's not going to make it at it's all. It's not going to do no. much. No. No, I, it's, it's, it's a really important point and I'm glad they raised it. I, I, did, I do want to go back to the the comparison to HIV, because I think they're, they're, the other, I mean, you mentioned perfect being the enemy of the good, but here's a case where, you know, we, I mean, wh- what do we need first and foremost? We need, we need vaccines and we need them distributed. And there's no, there's no real issue there, right? There's not, we're not worried about resistance to the, you know, the just virus. Just supply chains. We just got to get it out there. And the second thing is, I mean, the other thing is we're, we're talking about a two to three dose series. I'm, Two mainly, in some cases one, you know. Whereas with with HIV treatment, the debates were around this is a lifelong therapy. So even if we're going to uh, trial it in in places with limited access, did you then, just use that word? Yeah, yeah. trialed yeah. as a verb. Excellant. There I'm it is twice. It. There we go. Funny thing is, I didn't even intend that. <laughs> if we if we trial it in in places where the need is great, but the, but the access is limited, then we are committed to providing it lifelong for those people. This was before large-scale access to HIV treatment was there. None of those things exist for, for COVID. I mean, we're really talking about mm-hmm. delivering something we know how to deliver. Yes, there are supply chain issues that are different here. Mm-hmm. Just got to do it. Yeah. And it just feels to me like the commitment isn't there. And that just, uh, I, I feel like we need to catalyze people, but it's just not going to happen until, you know, everyone in, in the U S and, you know, everywhere else gets their, you know, second or third, uh, sorry, third or maybe even fourth dose. I don't know. And I don't know how you change that. You know, I kind of think that it's going to have to, we're going to have to wait for the development of the Delta plus the next variant that's going to arise because of poorly vaccinated populations that's going to come back and bite us in the ass. And then, you know, then the developed world is going to be a, perhaps a little bit more convinced, and a little bit more galvanized to step it up. I agree. You know, and that's really kind of sad that it's not just an ethical issue that would induce us to step it up. It's totally got to be, it's gotta be self-interest, you know? I mean, that sucks. Yeah. So cynical. Yeah. Any last thoughts before we move on, Chris? Nope. All right. So... Let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm normally. I say. I. I put Chris in the middle, and I do that for various reasons. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna let Chris go first this time. Oh, I feel okay. like I'm gonna. I'm All gonna right. let well, Chris let it rip. Of, I'll be short. Don't worry, Don. <laughs> that is. <laughs> He's gonna go downstairs and get a couple of cups of coffee, <laughs> play a little solitaire, take, take a lap around the block, come e- back and eBay. Do. It's time to, to update your stock portfolio. That's right. On eBay? Uh, or what is it, E-Trade? I don't know. B- if you're, trade, if you're trading stocks on eBay, I'm worried <laughs> for you. All right. I got an old sofa, by the way. Oh, 
Fantastic. Uh, I can get you in uh, early on that. Anyway, my daughter is a junior in high school and taking AP Biology. Mm-hmm. And she is studying, drum roll please. The Krebs cycle. Krebs cycle. Knew it. Knew <laughs> and it. I, I, I like when she signed up for this, I'm like, I knew that this was coming my way. <laughs> because every time, every kid, including me, you know, high school, college, Medical school, we did the crib cycle, and every time it was like painful. It is. It's so painful. <laughs> it's so painful. <laughs> anyway, I just want to remind you that that uh, the yield is thirty-eight ATPs for each molecule of glucose. In case people have forgotten, <laughs> I wrote a paper on ATP in college. <laughs> did you really? Oh, I did. Can you gosh. believe it? what a nerd I was? <laughs> what cyclic ATP it was. I thought that might be a little bit more exciting. Well, there you go. I don't even know how it could be cyclic. I, I, I guess the phosphates make a ring. Yeah, what, what is yeah, it? Yeah. That's, it's good to have three of them at any rate. Anyway, I thought it would be interesting to talk about the Krebs cycle uh, in terms of fun facts oh, no. about the Krebs cycle. Okay, Not about I think we're the Krebs both cycle going to get itself, a cup of coffee. Oh. That, is, that is just like painfully. Please I, tell me you have like a song about the Krebs cycle oh, or I, something like I, that. I wish I did. But, but here's the first fun pack, which is that each human every day generates their own body weight in ATP. Wow. Their own body weight? That doesn't seem possible. What do we do with all well, of it? A- ATP is like the universal energy currency that does everything it's that like keep, keeps Matt Fox going. Yeah, it does. And so it's like, it, it, it turns out to be rather important. Powered by ATP. <laughs> Powered by ATP. But can you imagine that? Like, you know, an entire Don Thea made That's, of ATP every they, single day. That sounds they, wrong. How do they measure that? I don't know. They The, the atp monitor. They weigh it? <laughs> they they probably have little guys with pickers <laughs> oh watching. Anyway, I thought that was cool. The, the other thing is, who is this Krebs guy? That was what oh, I was really curious about. Mil- Milton Krebs, I'm no, going to say. His name is Hans Adolf Krebs. Oh, I was close. He was a German-born but British naturalized biochemist who moved to the United Kingdom fleeing the Nazis because he was Jewish mm-hmm. in 1933. And this is the thing I think is the coolest. His first report on the Krebs cycle, which we have to admit in hindsight, was flippin' Brilliant, mm-hmm. right? Because this is like, turns out to be rather important yeah. to everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, we would not have Donthea, Matt it, Fox, Nick Guler, Leslie Salalian, or Chris Gill if not mm-hmm. for the ATP Krebs cycle. It's the cycle of life. It's the cycle of life. Anyway, he sent this as a letter to the prestigious journal Nature. You've heard of it. What? Yeah. Which Where one? Is Nature. Never heard of it. Summarily rejected with his snarky uh, rejections. And, really? But they already had, quote, sufficient letters to fill correspondence columns for seven or eight weeks. So they didn't publish? <laughs> they didn't publish his paper on the Krebs cycle. <laughs> did he go on to win a Nobel Prize for it? He did. Oh. <laughs> Which has got to be one of the greatest examples of revenge, scientific revenge, in history. <laughs> I love it. Wow. I wonder if he sent a picture of that to the oh. editors. Not only that, but he was knighted, knighted by the Queen in uh-huh. 1958 and eventually became a distinguished professor at Oxford University. Well with deserved. With his own department funded by the MRC. Queen, the Queen loves the Krebs cycle. He also also uh, discovered the urea cycle and and some other gly- glycoxylic acid cycle or something. So he, he wasn't like a one cycle guy. He was not a unicycle biochemist. <laughs> he was a tricycle biochemist. <laughs> <laughs> and and he used to use his tricycle okay, good. in the in and the courts that... of King's College. Why did he? Get... <laughs> I, Chris... Where he could be seen riding around in circles. <laughs> Chris, I like that one. That was good. Normally, I find that your... That is not true. <laughs> normally, your puns go in a direction that uh, I'm not always on board with. That one I liked. That was good. All right. That's all I got on the Krebs well cycle. Well done. Okay. Don, 38. 38. You, you wanna, 38. You wanna, remember it. 38. You want to go, go next, Don? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, 
I don't know about you guys, but I had chronically stuffed nose and sinuses. Oh. Did you ever have that, that it, problem? Well, they're either and then stuffed you, or and they're... You, and you take the nasal spray and you get addicted to the nasal spray because you get acclimated to it. Oh, sure. You, no. you can't sleep I because you get a rebound hyperemia. I did right. not get yeah, yeah. addicted to yeah, nasal hyperemia. spray. No. And, it's, no. and you have to go cold turkey and it's miserable. Oh, man. Well, I found an article that supports an alternative to um, nasal spray. I don't think we're going to like this. Is it living? Uh, ear, nose, and throat journal. When is this? This was January 4th, just this year, 2001, by Bulat, Old Dacum, and Lippert. And the title of this article is, Can Sex Improve Nasal Function? Probably. An Exploration of the Link Between Sex and Nasal Function. No. <laughs> yeah. No. This is a real journal? This is a real journal. <laughs> this is a real article? All sorts of questions are coming up in my mind. So... so they evaluated nasal breathing at five different times before sexual activity, Dude. which is the baseline, <laughs> immediately after sexual activity, uh-huh. 30 minutes, one hour, and three hours after sexual climax. I was afraid you were going to say during. <laughs> so they found that, in fact, sex is as effective as nasal spray in clearing your sinuses. So they found that... I want, I, want a, I want a biologic mechanism. So nasal breathing improves significantly after sexual intercourse with climax to the same degree as after application of nasal de- decongestant for up to 60 minutes, as measured subjectively, Whoa. as well as objectively, because they used an instrument that would measure nasal flow through the nose. And they were basically equivalent at various times after the act, or whether it's a nasal spray or it's sexual intercourse, except that nasal spray did tend to last longer than three hours. So nasal spray is basically better than sex, is what you're saying. This changes everything, Don. <laughs> Wow. How about that? That is news. Why was that not a, a headline story on CNN? They had a nasal obstruction symptom evaluation score. I bet everything. you didn't find this like on the on the hot things on the press from Nature or Science. Because sometimes no. they cover other journals. No, I don't know how I found this. <laughs> that is that is very cool. Well that's that was that was indeed an interesting one. So I, as you both know, I love when academics commit to a bit. So I found this on a, a retweet on Ellie Murray's Twitter, but I, it was from a professor of sociology, and he was responding to a comment that somebody else had made. I am 99.9% sure it's a joke, but you know, you never know. And he was responding that this particular topic was covered in his course, and they were referring to issues of power calculations, and this is actually covered in his course, and he then tweeted out the uh, an image of his syllabus for SOCH 710, which is called Social Theory Through Complaining. <laughs> the course description reads, this course is an intensive introduction to some main themes in social theory. It is required of first-year PhD students in the sociology department. Each week, we will focus on something grad students complain about when they are forced to take theory. You are required to tend under protest, write a paper that's a total waste of your time, and complain constantly. Passive-aggressive silence will not be sufficient for credit. <laughs> and then he proceeds to go through a number of topics that are covered in the course. Oh, that's and beautiful. I, you know, it can't possibly be real. I, I love it when people commit to the bit. You know, uh, Sanjay Srivastava years and years ago had one on uh, fake course syllabus on everything is effed. And it was, you know, people say everything is effed, but 
how do we define that? And what is the actual metric we use to determine? And Well, we have to use the F score. The F test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I totally, I love it. I love it. Then we'd be significantly effed. We. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, Chris you're, Can you you're be confident about that? 100%. You, 90, 97.5%. Wow, you guys are on today. Oh, I'm God. impressed. Well, that is the end of our program. Thank if you've God. got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at PropMattBox or Don at at DTheo1 or Chris at ID.Gill and he'll never see it. No. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode.